First John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Hopefully you've arrived there by now. And wherever you are, whether you're at home or here with us, I'd invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. First John 5, beginning in verse 14. And we're going to be reading through verse 17. John writes this. This is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we have asked of Him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is... There is sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. I've tagged this text, prayer matters. Prayer matters. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, I ask for your grace and your mercy as we look at your word communicated to us. God, I pray that you would give me strength and conviction and a boldness to preach, Lord. I pray that you would uphold me. Encourage your saints, for they are listening. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Prayer matters. You know, in Scripture, it's clear. We have commands, we have expectations that we would pray. The Bible actually tells us to pray without ceasing. We've made that into cute bumper stickers and, frig- and fridge magnets and nice wall decor. But that is a challenging call that is placed on our life to pray without ceasing. I'm going to try to be transparent here in this sermon. I know that that's not, that's not always my testimony. That I pray without ceasing. But it has been the testimony of some. One person that comes to mind when I think about praying without ceasing. When I think about the fact that prayer matters. And men and women who have believed that prayer matters. And it's reflected in their lives. I think about a man who who some of you may have heard of before. His name's George Mueller. George Mueller was a man who lived from 1805 to 1898. He lived in England, and he's considered to many, by many to be one of the greatest men of prayer who's ever lived. I said one of because we all automatically know one person who trumps George Mueller, but many consider him to be one of the greatest men of prayer who's ever lived. Again, he lived in England, and his ministry was actually focused on taking care of the many orphans who lived in the city of Bristol in England. And through his orphanage in Bristol, Mueller cared for as many as 2,000 orphans at one time. He cared for more than 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. But here's where it gets incredible. Here's, Here's why the life of George Mueller is so amazing. Throughout his ministry, he never, never made the needs of his ministry known to anyone except God. Except God. Mueller had in his prayer journal over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer. Over 50,000 
in his journal, 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or the very same hour that he prayed. Let me give you an example. One specific day, the orphanage had run out of food and they had about 300 children sitting at a breakfast table waiting for food. And George Mueller recorded in his journal that he prayed to God and thanked God for the breakfast that they were about to eat, even though they didn't have anything, because he was confident that God would provide for them. And as he was praying, there was a knock on the door, and a baker was standing outside with a huge load of bread for the orphanage. He said, the baker said that God had woken him up in the middle of the night and told him to bake more bread than usual and to take it to the orphanage. And he had no idea why, but he was convinced that God had told him to do it. And George said, thank you for the bread. And he took it inside for the children. And within a few moments later, there was another knock on the door. And this time it was the milkman. Because you know, back then they They didn't have fridges that store milk. It was delivered every day. And the milkman knocked on the door. And what had happened was that his cart had broken down outside of the orphanage. And he didn't want to leave the cart to go get the tools that he needed to fix it. Because he knew if he left the cart, all the milk would be stolen. So he figured, rather than it get stolen, let me give it to somebody who I want to give it to. So he decided to give all of the milk that was on the cart to George for the children instead. And in that moment, breakfast was provided. Bread and milk for the 300 kids sitting and waiting. But more importantly, God had answered prayer. Later on in his life, George decided to travel around the world. This was kind of as he was finishing up with with some of his orphanage work. But he wanted to travel the world and tell them about how incredible his God was. And that God could do anything if you had faith and you asked him according to his will. He was crossing the Atlantic Ocean in 1877 and his ship ran into a very thick fog. And George explained to the captain that he needed to be in Quebec by the next morning. He had to be to Quebec. The the captain told him that he had to slow the ship down for safety. And so George asked the captain if he could go down below deck and use the captain's chart room to pray for the fog to lift. And the captain allowed him. He actually followed him down there. And he was claiming to George that prayer was a waste of time. And so Mueller ended up praying. And as he was praying, the captain actually jumped in and started praying too. And in the middle of their prayers, Mueller literally stopped them. Remember, they're down below deck. He stopped them and said, we don't need to pray anymore. The fog has been lifted. And they walked upstairs back to the deck, and sure enough, there was no fog anywhere to be seen. When George Mueller died, he died a poor man in 1898. But the city of Bristol came to a halt for his funeral. Factories closed, businesses closed, and thousands upon thousands of people came out to line the streets to mourn and pay their respect as the funeral procession went by. And on the day of his funeral procession, the Bristol Times newspaper wrote an article about this man named George Mueller. And they said, and I quote, he was raised up for the purpose of showing that the age of miracles is not over. George Mueller is a powerful example of what John declares to us, that the Lord God hears our prayers And that the Lord God will answer them when we pray according to his will. Our prayers matter. Now, brothers and sisters, I wanted to be, I want to be as transparent as I can as I prepare to teach this text. I don't have a prayer life like George Mueller. 
I don't even have the testimony of prayer that he has. You see, and I want you to get this, I am passionate about prayer because I'm pitiful at it. I'm pitiful at it. And let, let me explain what I mean when I say I'm pitiful at it. I don't mean that I'm pitiful when it comes to the act of praying. To be honest with you, I, I pray frequently. I, I pray a lot. I pray for some of you in this church every single day. I have the church membership broken up over the course of a month, and I pray for five, six, seven of you every day. I find myself praying when I'm in the car. I find myself praying when I'm at my desk. I find myself praying when I'm sitting at the dinner table. I find myself praying when I should be listening to my wife when she's talking to me. I pray frequently. And I think that if you, you, you saw the the quantity of my prayer, you would think, man, Michael's doing all right. But you see, where I often struggle is with the belief that if I ask anything according to His will, He hears. And if I know that He hears whatever I ask, I know that I have what I have asked for. Believing that is my struggle. Honestly, Believing that my prayers matter in the grand scheme of God's plan at all is often a struggle for me. And listen, you can, you can judge me if you want to. You can't be like, man, this is our pastor up here saying this. I'm, this isn't speaker embellishment. I'm just trying to be honest with you about where I am. But I stand here as your pastor as a man who does not have it all together and who is day by day trying to figure out and desperately trying to look more and more like Jesus. Being honest with you, I often feel like the dad in Mark chapter 9 when it comes to my prayer life. I very often feel myself declaring, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That statement has meant so much to me. It meant so much to me, I got it tattooed on my arm, literally. I don't think you need to do that, but I believe, help my unbelief. And the reason that I share all of this with you, it's a twofold reason. First, so you can know and understand that as I stand up here this morning, that I have been, oh, I have been this week. And I am still preaching the message to myself that I'm about to preach to you. But the second reason I share all of that is because I, I don't know, I, I, I feel like the Holy Spirit was leading me to just be open and honest for a reason. And I think one of those reasons might be because I, I believe I'm not the only one who struggles like this when it comes to prayer. I don't think I'm the only one who questions whether or not my prayers actually matter. I believe there are others here this morning. There are some of you who are watching who could say, who would say, I pray a lot, but, but if I'm honest, Pastor, I don't know what it's doing. I don't know if it matters. And again, that, that might not be everybody, and that's okay if that's not your testimony. I don't want you to have that, that thought process and understanding. Some of you might be sitting here and be like, that's not my struggle. I have my struggles, but that's not, not it. You might be sitting here and saying, listen, I've got a prayer journal like Mueller's. My prayer life is a testimony to me that God hears me and that God gives what I ask when I ask according to his will. And I would say, praise God for that. Please come talk to me after the service. I got some things I want you to pray for then. But there are some of us here that you're going to have to bear with because there are some like me who just need to be reminded that our prayers matter and that God hears and that God responds. But I want to be as clear as I can at the front and I, I, want, you to, I want you to hear me say this clearly. Even though I struggle at times, I do believe that my prayers matter. 
I do believe that prayers change things. And the reason that I believe it, even when I don't always see it clearly, is because the Bible tells me it's true. The Bible testifies to this. Listen, a few weeks back as we, we briefly touched on prayer, I gave you this exact same testimony. I'm going to say the same words that I said in that sermon because I needed to be reminded of them, even if you don't. But Scripture testifies that prayer changes things because when you look through the pages of Scripture, you see the Bible testifies that when people prayed, the earth quaked. When people prayed, God split seas. When people prayed, enemies were defeated. When people prayed, the mouths of lions were shut. When people prayed, God's children stood in the fire without smelling like smoke. When people prayed, the sun froze in the sky over Gibeon and the moon over Ayalon. When people prayed, food fell from heaven and rocks poured forth water. When people prayed, bodies were cured of lifelong illnesses. When people prayed, prison chains fell off. When people prayed, demons fled. When people prayed, the dead were raised to life. And when people prayed, the greatest testimony of all, other people got saved. The Bible testifies that prayer changes things. So even when I don't feel it, I believe it. And see, ultimately, as John writes this this section of his letter. He wants us to have confidence that our prayers matter. And I believe that John John presents why our prayers matter. And honestly, he presents why our prayers matter in a way that we don't typically, we don't often think about in terms of why they would matter. But you see, John, he not only wants us to have confidence as we pray, John wants us to understand why prayer is so significant. Again, why it matters. And there are three truths that John teaches us that I want you to see this morning. And, and these three truths, they speak to the reality of why prayer matters so much, why the very act of praying is significant. So here's the first reason that he gives as to why prayer matters. First, prayer shows a confidence in the gospel. Prayer shows a confidence in the gospel. Look at what he says there in in the beginning of verse 14. He says, there is, or this is the confidence that we have before him. This is the confidence that we have before him. And he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so as we read that, the question that, that, that I had, as I read it originally this week, the question that I had is, well, where does this confidence come from? Because he says we have a confidence, and, and so where does the confidence come from? I, I want the confidence that John's talking about. I want to believe the confidence that whenever I ask anything according to his will, that God will hear it, and on top of that, God will answer it. Well, see, this is where... The letter as a whole helps us because remember, John's writing one letter. We've broken this up over the course of a few months, but this would have been read beginning to end. This is, this is one letter John is writing to them, and, and so we have to think about the confidence in the context of what we've already talked about because do you remember what we talked about in our text last week? John has literally just got done arguing that our confidence is in the testimony that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus has done what he said he would do, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he has provided a way for sinful people to be made right with God. And so because of what Christ has done, first and foremost, John has argued that we have confidence that we have the victory. Do you remember that in verses 4 and 5? 
We can have a confidence that we have the victory. John writes, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? But then as he continues on, our greatest confidence comes in verse 11. He says, and this is the testimony. This is it. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So John has already presented that our ultimate hope is that we are united to Christ and have peace with God the Father through what Christ has done. We have eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. That though we were dead in our, our trespasses and sins, though we had rebelled against God, though we deserved the wrath and the anger of God, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved to die. And there on the cross, God poured out all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his hatred of sin on Jesus, and he took it to the grave and he walked out victorious. And if we place our faith in him, we can, we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Peace with God. And so John is saying that that is our ultimate confidence, that we can have peace with God, that when we die and stand before him, God will look at us and see the righteousness of his son and invite us in for all of eternity. We have confidence in the life to come, but here in our text, what John is saying is that not only do we have confidence in the life to come, we have a confidence here and now. We have a confidence that not only will we get to approach God when we die, but we have a confidence that we can approach God here now while we live. We can come with boldness because of what Christ has accomplished. Again, it's not just that we have confidence in the life to come that we will be able to approach the Father through Christ. And and John did say that in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, In this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. But on top of that, now, John is arguing that we have confidence to approach the Father now through prayer. We have access now. And that's the significance, right, of what Jesus accomplished on the cross because there were some other things that happened when Jesus died. Do you remember some of them? There's one in particular that happened in the temple when Jesus breathed his last breath. Do you remember that? Yeah, Matthew 27, 51. Suddenly, this is as Jesus dies on the cross. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The curtain that separated mankind from the presence of a holy God was destroyed because of what Jesus did on the cross. And in light of that, the author of Hebrews can confidently write in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16, Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now here it is, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of trouble. We can approach the throne of God now through prayer, knowing that God hears us. 
But, but I want you to see this because, again, John, John's writing one letter here. He's building off of what he has already said. How is it that we can have this confidence? How is it that we can know that God hears us? Well, the answer is because of who God is to us now that we are in Christ. And John already covered this. Do you remember 1 John 3, verse 1? See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Listen to me, we approach God with confidence, not primarily because He is judge, not primarily because He is the ruler of all, not primarily because He is the sovereign King of eternity. We approach God with confidence because now in Christ Jesus, He is our Father. He is our Father, and we are His children. I, I don't think we think enough about what it means that we are adopted into the family of God, that God is our Father. I'm trying to remember how he said it, but in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer talked about the significance of adoption, and he talks about the fact that, that being made right with God, being justified, is the greatest blessing of Christ's work. It's the greatest blessing of Christ's work. But he goes on, he says, but the greatest privilege of what Christ did on the cross is that we are now adopted into his family. He is now our father. And all of this because of what Christ has done. John Stott notes, he says, for children of God, it's not a mere title. It's a fact. God gives us this privileged designation only because that is what we are by His grace. Because we are His children, like any good father, He freely allows us and invites us into His presence. And think about this. This means that our access to God, Him hearing us, the guarantee that He hears us, it's not dependent on how well we are at being obedient. It does not depend on whether or not we have said and done all the right Christian things. It doesn't depend on whether or not we are living the true Christian life as faithfully as we can. Our access to the Father is secure because of what Jesus has done for us. Our access is guaranteed because we are His children. And though we may rebel, even as His children, He is still our Father and He still welcomes us and delights in us when we come before Him in prayer. Now, we got to pause and apply this because I don't know about you, but one of the greatest weapons that Satan wields against me in the midst of my sin is a belief that I am too wretched to go before God in prayer, that he is tired of me, that he is sick of listening to me, that he doesn't want to forgive me again because he's done it time and time again. But when we have a confidence that who we are and our standing and our position as children is dependent not on what we do, but on what Jesus has done, we will continue even in the midst of sin to go boldly in the presence of our our Father, knowing that He loves us, knowing that He wants us in His presence. And to some degree, look, I get this. As a parent, I understand that. I'm a father. I don't care what nonsense my kids do, how disrespectful and rebellious they have been. I don't care if they knock my plants off the wall like they did yesterday or if they're fighting or if they're being disobedient. I just cannot fathom refusing to give my ear to my child. And that's the way that God treats us with more faithfulness and more consistency than we would ever show to our kids. 
And all of this because of what Jesus has done. All of this because of the truth that the gospel proclaims. Therefore, what all this means is that we approach God, is that as we approach God faithfully in prayer, when we cry out to God through prayer, we are declaring that we believe that the gospel worked. We believe that the gospel has accomplished that which it said it would accomplish. When we approach with boldness, believing that God hears us, it is a testimony that Jesus has indeed provided salvation and adoption. Listen to me, prayer only makes sense in the shadow of the cross. It only makes sense in the shadow of the cross. Prayer reveals that we believe in the power of the gospel to reconcile us to God. And what prayer does is prayer puts the gospel to work in our life every day. And Jesus is the guarantee that God hears us. So first, as John is kind of making this case that prayer matters, John shows us that prayer reveals a real confidence in the gospel. If you want to know the degree to which you are believing the saving message of the gospel, examine the depth of your prayer life. But here's the second truth that John pre presents as to why prayer matters. Not only is it, does it reveal our confidence in the gospel, but prayer is meant to conform us to God's will. I, I want you to hear that. That's, that's a very important truth, that prayer is actually meant to conform us to God's will. Look again at verse 14, and we're going to read into 15. He says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked for. Now, there is something very important that we have to understand correctly in order to make sense of this verse. This, this is important. If you're not going to listen to much I say about prayer, I, would, I, I really want you to tune into this part about how prayer is meant to conform us to God's will. Because I think that when we get this, it will change our prayer lives. I think it will change how we view prayer, how we approach prayer. There's something we have to understand because people have taken verses like this. People, people have taken verses like Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it's yours. We take verses like John 15, or John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain and you ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And pay, people have taken these verses and they've used them to argue that if we are faithful and if we pray, we will always get whatever we want. We will always get whatever we want. I'm not making that up. People teach that. There are churches this morning that are teaching that reality, that if you, if you really love God, just ask whatever you want, and, you'll, and he'll give it to you. But the problem is that that's not actually what these verses are trying to communicate to us. The emphasis on these verses, we always put the emphasis on getting whatever we want. But these verses don't put the emphasis on getting whatever we want. The emphasis is always on the posture from which we pray. Let me go back through them. Mark eleven twenty four that says, therefore, I tell you everything that you ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. But what we often miss is that in the verses preceding that, what Jesus is talking about is all about having faith of genuinely depending on God, of believing that what he has is best, believing that what he does is best, genuinely trusting in him. 
and believing that his ways are always best. Then he makes the statement about asking whatever you want. Take John 15, 7. Again, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. We often focus on the ask whatever you want and it will be done for you part while neglecting the first part that if you remain in, my, in me and my words remain in you, then I will give you whatever you want. Or you could go back to our text. And we like verse 15, right? 1 John 5, 15. And if you know that he hears whatever you ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. But we often skip over verse 14. If we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. Here's what I'm getting at. God does not exist to serve you. Everybody here should have said amen to that because we need to be reminded of that. God is not here to serve you. Does he serve you? Yes, because he's a good father. He chooses to. He delights in it, but he's not, he's not here to serve you. God is not a genie in the sky who sits around and waits for you to rub his magic lamp and then is obligated to give you what you want. This ain't Aladdin. It's just not. To again quote John Stott, he reminds us that prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer, listen to this, every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. You see, the emphasis in all of the passages that I just mentioned above, including our text, is not primarily on giving you what you want. The emphasis is placed on knowing what God wants and desiring the things that God desires. It is about knowing His will. And it may be, and I'm saying this as much to me, for me right now as I am for you, it may be that it appears that so few of our prayers are answered the way we want because we are praying about what we want and not what God wills. You see, perhaps, perhaps part of the reason that God gave us prayer was, that not, was not so that we could change everything around us, but so that we would be changed to look more like him. Now hear me, I'm not saying that God will not change things around you. I just went through a list at the beginning of this service of God responding and changing circumstances. I'm not saying that, that he won't intervene in your circumstances, in, in your trials, in your hurts, that, that he won't answer your petitions. I'm not even saying you shouldn't ask God to do those things. I think you absolutely should. But what I am saying is that our deepest desire when we pray, more than getting what we want, should be that the will of God would be accomplished. Jesus gives us a great example of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember it? Jesus is on the eve of his crucifixion. Right? He knows what's coming. And, but more importantly, Jesus knows what is in the cup that he is asking the Father to take from him. Jesus knows that on the cross he will not only face physical death, but he will face spiritual death. 
he will face the full weight of God's wrath and God's judgment and his anger poured out on him, a single man hanging between heaven and earth for every sin of every believer, past, present, and future. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He knows that wrath is coming. And make no mistake about it, wrath was poured out on Jesus. That's the significance of the sky turning black in that moment. Because whenever you look at the Old Testament, when God's judgment is poured out, things got dark. In that moment, God was pouring out his fierce, scalding hatred of sin on Jesus. And so Jesus knows what he's about to face. And he's in the garden. And do you remember how he prayed in the garden? It's a prayer that we know, that we quote, but I don't think any of us would have prayed it in that situation. Father, this is Luke 22, beginning in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, if you are willing, Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. But it goes on, it says, Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And, and I don't have time to get into all of it. I wish I did. But there is so much in those verses. Notice that Jesus prayed for his situation to change. But notice, second, that Jesus cared more about the will of the Father than getting what he wanted. Jesus cared more about the will of the Father than getting what he wanted. And make no mistake about it, he wanted to not face the cross. But notice third, that God, God did respond, but it wasn't how Jesus asked. He did not take the cup from him, but God responded, and God sent angels to serve him and to minister him in that morning, to encourage him and to strengthen him, to give him the grace to endure what lied ahead. God responded for his good. When we pray... It should be less about getting what we want and more about the will of God being accomplished. So all of this should lead us to a question. Now I want you to answer it, not out loud. Maybe write it in your notes, think about it, pray about it, wrestle with it these next few days. But when you pray, do you care more about getting what you want or that the good, perfect, and pleasing will of the Father would be accomplished? Or perhaps for some of you, maybe that's not the most helpful question. Maybe the question that you should answer is, does it seem like when you pray, your prayers are never answered the way you think they should be? And if we honestly answer those questions and come to the conclusion that, man, I do care more about what, what I think and what I want than the will of God. Or, or maybe you answer and say, man, it does seem like my prayers are never answered the way I think they should be, be answered. Perhaps then, we may not understand the will of God like we think we do. And what we need is a fuller picture, a bigger picture of who God is and what he wills. And what we need for that is the word of God. Because brothers and sisters, the word of God tells us about our God and it tells us about his will. The Bible reminds us that, that our God is a good God, that he is a patient God, that he is a kind God, that he is the giver of all good gifts. He is a God who has promised not to withhold things that are for our good, and he has promised that he will never give us things that are for our demise. The Bible tells us that God is faithful. The Bible tells us that God is for us, and, and the Bible tells us that God is finishing the work that he started in us. 
And, and I just want to remind you that God cares about you. He is a good, good Father, and what He wills is always for your good, and it is always for His glory. So let's get, let's get real practical with that for a minute, because it sounds good, it, it sounds you know, cute coming from the pulpit, but what that means is that if you are praying for something, and you believe that it is in line with God's will, and yet God says no, it means there's something better. But that could be hard for us at times. Because there are times when, if I'm honest, I feel like I can back up with Scripture the things I'm praying for. I feel like the Bible tells me that God God wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so sometimes I'm left questioning, then why isn't God answering my prayer and the Holy Spirit giving this person eyes to see and ears to hear? I pray that about family members, and I just don't always get it. But what the Bible tells me is that God is good, and He is kind. And he always accomplishes that which is best. But the only way we'll know this, the only way we'll see this, the only way we'll believe this is with the word of God. Not only to know about our God, but to know about how he works and what he wills. And once we begin to see and believe that God is good and that what he has is good, we will start to Something will happen, right? We will, we will begin to find ourselves more and more praying for the things and longing for the things that match the will and heart of God. I would argue that we will do this more and more as we pray through Scripture, the very Scripture that is telling us about our God. You see, I told you that story about George Mueller at the beginning, but one thing that I didn't tell you when he was asked to describe how he prayed, he said that he prayed through the Bible. He didn't just pray about the things that popped into his head that he felt like would be good to pray about in that moment. He opened the word of God to know God. And as he saw God, he prayed about God. He prayed to look like God. He prayed that God's will would be accomplished. He used the very word of God to drive how he prayed. You see, when we pray like this, when we pray through the Bible, when we pray believing that God knows best, that what God has is best, when we pray believing that even if it's contrary to what we think or want, God is doing what is good. When we believe those things, we will find ourselves praying more and more in a way that begins to conform to the will of God, and that's a good thing. Prayer will begin to break us so that we pray for the things that breaks God's heart. So prayer shows us a confidence in the gospel. Prayer, prayer conforms us more to the will of God. But here's the, here's the final, final truth that John presents to us about prayer and why it matters. Prayer matters because prayer reveals our love for others. Prayer actually reveals our love for others. Look at Look at what he writes there in verses 16 and 17. He says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death and I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, time's moving away from me quickly here. 
I know there's a lot that you could discuss about those two verses because there's a lot of theological implications packed in there, but, but I want to try to give you a basic understanding of what he's saying because when he starts talking about sin leading to death and sin not leading to death, it can get a little confusing. And so the question that we should ask is that what does John mean when he talks about sin leading to death and a sin that does not lead to death? Again, I'm going to try to give you a snapshot here. John begins and he says that if you see a believer committing a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray for him and pray that God would give him life. So when he says sins that do not lead to death, he's talking about sinning in a way that doesn't lead to hell. Now you might be thinking, well, hold on a second, pause, pastor. I thought you've been saying for years that all sin led to hell. You are absolutely right if you are talking about those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. But notice who he's talking about. He says, if anyone sees a fellow believer, some translations that you're reading might say a brother. He's talking about Christians, about brothers and sisters. And see, here's the beauty of the cross for us, right? The beauty of Jesus' death and resurrection is that it covered our sins once and for all. So for us, even though we battle with sin, even though we fight with sin, we know that our position is secure because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So even though we still battle sin, it will not lead to our death because Jesus has died in our place. So, so John says, listen, if you see a brother, or a, sister, or a brother or sister sinning, pray for them. Keep them lifted up so that God will give them life. Well, the question then becomes, what's this life he's talking about? Because if he's talking about brothers and sisters, don't they already have eternal life? Well, he's not meaning eternal life. I think Romans 8.10 helps us out here. Because in Romans 8.10, Paul writes, now if Christ is in you, so if he's already in you, the body is dead to dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives. That's a continual, perpetual giving of life because of righteousness. So what John's actually saying here is that that we should pray that the Holy Spirit gives righteousness, not talking about positionally with how we are seen in the eyes of God, but practically as we fight sin daily to look more and more like Jesus. So in a nutshell, what John is saying, listen, if you see your brothers and sisters sinning, pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their life so that they would be righteous. That's what he's saying. Pray that that the Spirit would intervene and that they would pursue righteousness. But just to kind of give you a little understanding, he goes on, he says, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. And a lot of people have questions about what comes next. He says, there is sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. And so some people have read that to say, well, what does John mean here? Because he's basically saying, now, for those whose sin do lead to death, so for the unbelievers, did he just say we shouldn't pray for them? No, that's not what John's saying. What John's saying is that he's, he's saying that what I'm talking about right now, I'm not, I'm not talking about praying for unbelievers. He's like, I'm not saying that you should pray about that. He's not saying you shouldn't pray about that. He's trying to get you to see my focus right now is on the church. My focus is on believers. My focus is that you would pray for your brothers and sisters who have been redeemed when they battle with sin. Now, here's what I want you to see in these two verses. A major thrust of John's entire letter has been to love God and love people well. Do you remember how many times he's talking about loved, loving others well? Right? If God is love, we love other people. I mean, so many times in this book we're told to love other people. And John is arguing here that our prayers matter because through our prayers we are loving others well. That praying for others is a means of loving them well. In essence, what John is saying is that, listen, we need to be fighting alongside our brothers and sisters as they battle sin. 
We need to be fighting for one another. And one of the chief ways that we fight is by praying for brothers and sisters, by pleading on their behalf before our God and Father. We need to be praying for one another. I need for you to be praying for me, just like you need me to pray for you. I'm not trying to put a legalistic burden on you, but I should not be the only one who prays through our membership every month. Your pastors shouldn't be the only one who pray for the brothers and sisters who are in covenant community with you. So should you. You should be praying for your brothers and sisters because you know it as well as I know it that there is a devil out there who is roaring around like a raging lion seeking someone to destroy. But as we pray for one another, we are proving our love for one another. And try to bring this thing to a close. I want you to see this. As John has been entering into this discussion and prayer in these few verses, verses 14 through 17, I want you to notice where the focus is. The focus is first on the gospel. The focus is second on the will of God. The focus is third on your brothers and sisters. Notice where the focus is not primarily placed. The focus is not primarily placed on you. And that reality has to shape how we pray. Let me say it like this. When you examine your prayer life, and again, I'm not trying to come down on you hard. I'm saying these things to me too. I've cried about these things a lot this week, wrestled with them. But when you examine your prayer life, honestly, how much of your time is focused on you asking God for things for you? How much of your prayer life is about your circumstances and your problems? And again, listen, please hear me. My goal is not to tell you not to pray for those things. We should pray for those things. The Bible calls us to cast our cares on the Lord because he cares for us. The Bible wants us to bring our circumstances and our trials and our temptations and our struggles before God in prayer. The, the Bible calls us to do that. The problem is that that's not all the Bible calls us to do. The Bible tells us that at the end of the day, prayer is not ultimately about us. Prayer is not first and foremost about us getting what we want in this life. Prayer, first and foremost, is an act of submission. It shows our dependence on God. It is about growing in your understanding of who God is, what His will is, and praying as an act of submission for His will to be done. Again, Every prayer ought to be a variation of your will be done. I mean, consider even what Pastor Lance read earlier. I didn't even know he was going to read it, but the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gives it as a model for prayer. Notice all the things that come before asking for your daily bread. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What Jesus is saying is that when you start, you better start with a recognition of how great and glorious and good our God is. I was once talking to a Christian talking about that point he was asked the question of how long in your prayer the prayer time do you spend just praising God and he said not enough but more than anything else but then it moves on right our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name and then here it is thy kingdom come thy will be done that's the starting point that God is great and his way is better and that's the posture from which we enter into any time of faithful prayer Let me close this this morning. 
As we close, let me just say this. As you hear this, I want you to know that prayer is not meant to be a burden. Prayer is a privilege. It is a privilege that was secured for you because of what Christ done, because of what Christ did on the cross. Because of what he accomplished, we are no longer slaves to sin, but children of God. He is our Father, and Jesus' death and resurrection secure our eternal access to the Father. Therefore, go boldly before him. And as you do, trust and believe that he is a good father, that he loves you, that he will never withhold a good thing from you. Pray bold prayers, believing that God hears you and that God responds to you. And if it's not the response that you want, trust that God is looking out for you. He sees things that you can't see and he knows things that you don't know, but never doubt that he is for you and not against you. And if you doubt that, run back to the cross and see his love displayed for you. Remember 1 John 4.10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Prayer matters.